What a joy to be able to bring you the Word of God. And what a joy to have experienced that last week by the hands of a couple of men here within our church, uh, through Stephen and Peter. Just what a blessing that was, I know particularly to me, and I hope that we all see it that way, that uh, these men preached to us and faithful to the Word, uh, genuinely caring about your souls, wanting us to grow and to be shaped by the Word of God. I'm just thankful for that and, and the way the Lord's using uh, so many within this church to proclaim the gospel, proclaim truth again and again. If you would, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we'll conclude Mark chapter 12 that we've been in for a little while in this scene that's been developing over the last several Sundays of this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, we, we've parked here, and it's been questions and answers and questions and answers, and it, it, it's come to a conclusion. And what Jesus says today is no small thing, and it's so critical to each and every one of us as we gather here this morning. Uh, I've entitled this, Beware the Scribes. Beware the Scribes. And we'll be looking at verse 38 through 44 of Mark chapter 12. Mark writes this, in his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. <clears throat> well, I, I think in some ways we've already heard this this morning. We live in a world that's bombarded with a tremendous amount of information, particularly with all the things that are going on. And we live in a unique time where that information is coming to us at a rapid fire pace, 24 hours a day. That's sort of a a badge of honor to many places that they're able to provide you information 24 hours a day. And through all that information that we're getting, it's really difficult to sort through what is true and what is not true. And along the way, we've been able to uh, hear people use the words false and fake over and over and over again. They've become such a part of our vocabulary. And the reality is, I think we've come to a place where it's difficult to see whether or not we're being deceived whether or not people are lying to us, and we desperately want to know what is true. And, and as I came in and I listened to a little bit of John uh, teaching from Psalm 44 earlier, he made the comment, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff. Eventually we'll know that. Eventually that will be separated and we'll see that take place and we'll know the distinction between those two things. Sometimes it takes years for that to happen. They were able to look back and say, well, this is what was true, this is what was false, we're able to identify weed and chaff in that way. Sometimes it's years to weed the garden in that way. But always, always, the Word of God stands as a beacon of truth. 
it is established like a rock that the waves of contemporary ideas just crash upon again and again. And every time that they pull away from the rock, it is there, unmoved, unchanging, true. The Word of God's like a compass pointing the way through a storm. When strong winds attempt to blow you off course, the darkness aims to disorient you. It lays out the true course, unwavering. It's like a light that shines in the darkness, exposing what's pretended to be one thing when in fact it's genuinely something else. The Word reveals it to be the complete opposite of what it pretends to be. And that's really what you find in Mark chapter 12 going on. And it's really eerily similar to what you hear in Jeremiah chapter 23. Look at Jeremiah 23. We're only going to look at the first five verses here. But I want you to see what the Lord was saying was going on in Israel during that time. And then how eerily similar it is to what you see taking place this morning in the text. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. Jeremiah writes this, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. He says this, You have scattered my flock and driven them away. You've not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them. Look what they will not do. They will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That's a text we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. What are the shepherds? That's what the Lord is saying in Jeremiah 23. There were false shepherds tending the people in Jeremiah's day who had neglected their calling. He, he is saying you have been deceived. You've been lied to. They're false shepherds. They've forsaken their duty. They've neglected their calling. And as a result of that, the people were suffering greatly. And as a result of that, the Lord was going to act. The Lord promised to raise up shepherds. Fast forward then to the text that we just read from Mark chapter 12. Go back there. The shepherds of Israel, when you think about the context of everything going on here, have just concluded their public interrogation of Jesus. And he's just asked them the question about what's the foremost command and dealt with that issue. And he's just answered their conundrum about how can the Messiah be David's Lord and David's son? And now the good shepherd comes here in this text that we just read a moment ago to expose the false shepherds and to reveal just how wicked their leaders are that is most disturbing when it relates to even the most vulnerable that are among them. All is not well in the Lord's pasture in Mark chapter 12, and he's identifying that. And we look at that and we go, well, that's nice. What does that have to do with us? But the reality is, is that we would do well to observe the words of Christ here, that we might recognize some of the same things going on in our day. And if necessary, to expose those things out of love for other people, all while examining our own hearts, knowing that we can be tempted in the same way that we see taking place here. Examining our own hearts in view of the Word of God, that we might genuinely be a people, a church that show compassion to others, as our good shepherd has shown to us. I'm going to break this down into two parts. 
And the first part is verse 38 through 40. And I want you to see here false shepherds exposed. False shepherds exposed. Now, you need to realize something about the place that these words come in the whole of Mark's gospel. The words that Jesus is going to speak here in verse 38 through 40, look at it. These are the final words of his public teaching. These are the last things that he's going to say to the crowds. This is the last time of teaching that he's going to have to the masses here. If you look at verse 43, this takes place as it regards his disciples. If you go to chapter 13 then, when this all ends, all those words are to his disciples. If you go to chapter 14, he's in a house talking to a small group of people. This is his final public teaching in Mark's gospel. And what's the purpose of this teaching? Verse 38, aware. You see, he's warning them. The last time that he has to talk with the people of this pasture, he's warning them. Beware of the scribes. He's warning the people who have gathered in Israel to the danger that is found in their shepherds. If you look at the parallel passages to this, in Mark's gospel, it's scribes. In Luke, he says scribes. If you go to Matthew chapter 23, he identifies two groups, scribes and Pharisees here. And ultimately, he's saying, warning, warning, there's danger in these people. There are danger in your shepherds. All is not well. Beware is the imperative here. Beware the scribes. He's telling them what they must see. What's really going on with the purveyors of Jewish religion in his day, things are not as they appear. On the, on the surface, maybe everything looks okay, but he's digging down below that. He's pulling the curtain back, and he's looking at what's going on here. They've been hearing things from their religious leaders, and what they've been hearing is not necessarily true. It's not necessarily genuine and real and authentic. And now the Son of God speaks. Note something just in that, but where the scribes, that we wrestle with, and I hear often in our day, he, he doesn't here take the perspective of so many today who fear man and little fear God, and so cannot even fathom that you would offer a critique of a false teacher, much less just all out warning against false teachers and identifying them as they were probably there in his presence. And people today will say, well, I can't believe, how dare they say somebody's a false teacher? How could you even possibly do that? We're following the example that's set here by our master. What he is doing here, beware the scribes. What he is doing here is what Paul does. And what he's doing here is what Paul urges Timothy to do in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 20 and 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 9 through 11. And what Paul expects elders in the church to be doing all on the basis, not out of being mean and ugly and spiteful and rude, but out of being loving. This warning, beware the scribes, that's coming from a heart of love from your Savior. Beware the scribes is coming from a heart of love. This is rooted in love. It's rooted in Christ's love for the sheep of Israel that he's warning them. It's rooted in his love for the scriptures that, that they would be handled and treated correctly. And it's rooted in a love for his fathers. Love warns others of danger. And that's what's taking place here. Beware the scribes. Why? Well, he tells us, essentially, he tells us they're pretenders of righteousness, that everything isn't as it appears. 
from, from what's visible, from what's observable. If you would have been there during that time, you would have been able to see what he's talking about. As he's lining these things out, you could have shaved your head and go, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. I've seen that. It's all showing up here. Look at verse 38. They like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. The key word I think here is they like these things. They're drawn to them. They're ambitious about them. They desire these things. This is what brings them pleasure. And all of it has kind of a common theme. All of it's to get noticed, right? You see that? That they would have loved and craved social media if they had it. They would have utilized it. They would have been on it constantly, even as they were sitting in church here this morning, because they would have craved it. In a sense, they were the social media celebrities of their day. Break these down into the four parts that it has here. They like to walk around in long roads. Why? So that people would go, oh, wow, look at their long robe. Nobody has a robe like that. These were not everyday garments. They were something that would have been put on like in a festival or some sort of a celebratory robe. And it showed something of social prominence that you would have been wearing this robe, that you would have had access to this robe. And in this way, they're setting themselves apart from all the other people because they have this robe. And the, the, the thing that I think that you would somewhat compare it to is going to the graduation at Tech, Right? And people start walking in, and you see professors walking in wearing their academic gowns, and then students come in in their cap and gowns, and that's great, that's fine, that's even appropriate and right and good, and it has a it has a deep rooted purpose. But when those people go wear those at the grocery store and at the mall, then it becomes weird, right? That's what's going on here. Some of you remember. Some of you remember the County Line restaurant out north of town, right? You've been there. Some of you, I think, may have gotten married there. Uh, they're in this room. And there are times when you would walk around out there, if you remember, on all that big open area, and you would hear something behind you making a noise, and you'd turn around, and there'd be standing what? A great big peacock, right? Big tail, fanned open. What's it doing? Look at me. Look at me. They want to get noticed. It's the same thing that you have here. If you walked around in extraordinarily religious, ornament, expensive garments like you find here, it's because you are wanting to get noticed. And the, the maybe uncomfortable thing that you find here is that Jesus is calling them out in this way, and some of them are probably strutting around in these garments right around him. He's saying this, and they're probably kind of taking a step back because this is this is them that he's talking about. You can look around, you can see this taking place. They like to walk around in long robes. Look at the second one. They like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. In public places, it brought them great pleasure for people to come up to them and go, Oh, Rabbi, oh, Scribe, oh, Pharisee. And to confess these things that you're set apart for everybody else and that masses of people would come along and do this. The scribe is in the marketplace today. Look at the, the third. They, they liked the chief seats in the synagogue. Again, all of these social prominence, social prominence, social prominence. 
that they would rise to the top, that they would set themselves apart. Look who's setting them in the chief seat, even in the place of worship. Even when they came to read the scriptures, even when they came to pray, they would thrust themselves to the very front so that they might be seen. They desired to get noticed in where they sat. They were deficient in humility here. That They were really like politicians vying for attention. And as Jesus is saying this, I think there are those in the crowd that are probably just shaking their heads going, I've been in that synagogue. I've been in that marketplace. I've seen these things take place. It's really undeniable. And, and if there are scribes listening to all this, they're probably wanting to just blend into the crowd and disappear, but that's a little bit more to do with an elaborate robe, right? The fourth, they liked places of honor at banquets. They wanted to set aside be as close to the one who is getting the most attention. Dinners, weddings, celebrations, front and center, social prominence, and the favorite seat beside the host. They were always sort of tending the societal garden so that their reputation would bloom and flourish for everybody to come and see that they held this top spot. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 36, it's again the parallel passage here to Mark chapter 12. And really, in some ways, I think Matthew is the unabridged version that really pulls the Pharisees into the mix here. And this is what you read in verse 1. The scribes and the Pharisees, he says, have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Verse 5 really captures it. Jesus saying, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi. You see what he's doing? Jesus has taken here what the people had observed going on all around them, and he's traced its source to the heart of Israel's religious leaders, and he's exposed them as frauds. They're not the models of virtue they pretend to be. They're not the models of righteousness and godliness they claim to be. It is a sham. And the warning is here, and he's saying, don't be fooled. Why is he warning? He genuinely believes these are dangerous men. You hear that, and you go, what's so dangerous about some strange fellow wearing a robe and putting on this front display? And what's so dangerous about this guy working his way to the very front of, of banquets and all this stuff? What's so dangerous about him wanting to be called rabbi in front of everybody? Well, it reveals the heart of the shepherd. And the shepherd with this kind of heart is incredibly dangerous. This shepherd is dangerous because they deal with the souls of men. He's dangerous because they deal with the lives of men. This has to do with the eternal lives of men and women. They're dangerous in Jesus' day. Friend, this same picture that you're getting here of shepherds is dangerous in our day. 2,000 years later, this is still dangerous. But where the pastor who likes to walk around in ridiculously expensive shoes and get noticed on social media, and if you didn't know that, that's actually a thing. 
a disturbing thing. But where the pastor who flaunts their wealth, how many airplanes they have, or even how culturally relevant they are. But where the pastor who likes the chief seats in their photos of their visit to the White House. But where the pastors who like to make known their opinions of the church's failures and proclaim their personal self-righteousness when it comes to topics such as justice and ecclesiology of church if they tend the societal garden of their day and get noticed so their reputation might flourish. So they might get the little mark check and they get more likes and more views and more tweets than anybody else. Uh, this is what's going on. Robes here have been replaced by suits and shoes and even t-shirts and the marketplace has been replaced by social media platforms with likes and views and shares. The synagogue with conferences and denominations and networks but it's all just a different venue to show the same heart problem that you find in Mark chapter 12. And it's showing up. These are ultimately expressions of the shepherd's heart. Remember why it's dangerous. Because they're leading people down the path in which they are going. There is a reason for warning in our day, as there was beware the scribes of Jesus' day. But there's also a reason, I think, at the same time to make Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through 40 a bit more personal to each one of us. Before we, we go on in this text, I think it would do us well to take what Jesus is observing here in the scribes and really think about how that deals with our own hearts. Because the reality is we're drawn to these same ends the scribes are. That's not just unusual to them. It's a commonality that we have with them. Now, even this week, I was just listening to how disconnecting from technology is important and how study after study has shown that the way that they set technology up is so that it would drive right to the core of what's taking place here, that we want to promote ourselves. And we want ourselves to be seen on the top. The virus of sin that's corrupted our system has left us vulnerable in the way that we see here. And the world is aching to exploit it, even for financial gain. So I'm asking you to take what we see going on here and to examine your own heart and ask, really, are the things that I do related to following Christ rooted in a sincere love for Christ, the gospel, and his church? Or is the reality they're all about self-promotion? Because religion today can continue to do the same thing. Friend, if that's you, if you genuinely look at your heart today and analyze that and go, that's that's who I am. That, that's what I've been attempting to do is what I see going on here. Friend, repent. There is forgiveness found in Christ who is speaking here in this text. If you examined your heart, would you find yourself as making yourself something of the standard of righteousness? And you look around and you go, well, people just aren't as righteous as what I am. They don't read the Bible as much as I read the Bible. They certainly don't pray as much. And look at the way that they act. They don't act like me. But that's a, a mindset that you would have seen and found here in the scribes. How do you act with your brother and sister whenever they bring sin to your attention? Are you quick to examine your own heart, realizing that that could continue to exist there, and that they may be coming to you out of genuine love? Or are you quick to just defend yourself and go, certainly they're attacking me? How do you speak about yourself? It isn't as the scribes probably spoke about themselves. I mean, are you the guy that lets everyone know how early you get up in the morning to pray? Man, I, you know, it's just been a tough week. I had to get up at 4 a.m. to pray an extra two hours this week. What about you? 
Or, or the guy that, that lets you know every time you see them how many books they've read this week, this month, this year, what their reading plan is, so that they have more Christian book intake than you certainly do. You want to tell people like that, congratulations, let me get you an elaborate robe so you can pray and read in it. <laughs> but the reality is none of us are immune to the desire to get noticed like you find here in them. His pride and self-righteousness spread unhindered in your heart. Repent, brother and sister. Forgiveness is found in Christ and walk in humility like you see your Savior here. This is the condition of Israel's shepherds. And as superficial as they are being exposed as being here in verse 38 through 39, verse 40 really turns down a disturbingly dangerous path revealing how wicked they are. Look at verse 40. Same scribes who devour widows' houses, who eat up, who consume here. Devour is the same word used in the par parable in Mark 13, verse 4, where the birds come in and they devour the seeds that have fallen beside the road. They eat them up. They consume them. And so look at what's going on here. It's not the sword that's devouring the most vulnerable in Israel. It's not disease that's doing it. It's not famine or it's not even Rome that's doing it. It's the shepherds. It's the scribes devouring widows. He's really intentional here, devouring widows. He's talking about those that are most vulnerable, those that have lost their husband in an ancient world. This is a recurrent theme all throughout the Bible to, to defraud a widow is the most despicable thing that you see taking place often again and again in the Bible. And you see widows and you see their vulnerability and you see their risk of losing their life during this time. Think about the book of Ruth, right? The husband of Ruth dies. The husband of Naomi dies. Naomi's sons die, who is Ruth's husband. There are no children. They return to Bethlehem. The vulnerability of Naomi is what makes it striking that Ruth doesn't return to her family where there would be safety that would be found. But she leaves all of that. She exposes herself to the whole world in loving devotion to Naomi. And then when their vulnerability encounters the kindness of Boaz, it just heightens the nature of his character. How kind and loving and gentle, how full of grace and love is Boaz as he shows this to Ruth. That's commendable. But the sense of what Jesus is saying is that if the scribes had encountered Naomi and Ruth, they would have demanded whatever grain Ruth had gleaned from the field of Boaz and left them to die. They would have been like a wild animal tearing them to shreds and ultimately consuming them. This is the way of the wicked, Psalm 94, verse 6. Slay, slaying the widow and strangers and murdering the orphan. Totally contrasted to the way of the Lord. What's the Lord do? Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord protects the stranger. He supports the fatherless and the widow. By the way, that hasn't changed much in 2,000 years either. When you think about false shepherds, they continue to prey on the most vulnerable. If you, if you look at studies on, on people who are exploited by these people on television that are exploiting people nationwide around the world, particularly in poorest of nations, 
and they're exploiting the most vulnerable people. I've, I've told you before about the funeral that I went to. I worked at the bank of a widow, and then the book was signed by, uh, the, the visitor book was signed by an executive from one of these prosperity preachers' ministries that they had flown all the way out to West Texas to come to her funeral because she'd given them so much money. Christ Church doesn't exploit the most vulnerable, right? The, the Word of God directs us in all ways. The Word of God directs us here to care for the most vulnerable. You see it in James, widows and orphans. You see it in 1 Timothy 5, 3, honor widows. 1 Timothy 5, 9, care for their needs. But the shepherds here who are meant to provide and protect those most open to attack are instead feeding on them. He just dealt with the verse, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. They do not love their neighbor. They're devouring their most vulnerable neighbors when they have the opportunity. This is a scathing indictment of their negligence to shepherd, where they've been exploiting their position to make themselves fat. And like all false shepherds, they're self-promoting parasites, essentially. They're pretending their hypocrisy, their false righteousness, it's even evident in the way that they communicate with God. Look at verse 40, the second half. For appearance sake, the Christian Standard Bible says for show, they offer long prayers. It's a performance in a lot of ways that he's already identified in them and how it is that they speak to God, how they interact with him. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, he says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. In Matthew 6, it's more of a critique about the public performance that they're, they're showing here. You get to Luke 18, 11, it's more of a critique about their self-righteous character as they pray. I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. But you come here to Mark 12, 40, and it's more of a critique on this lengthy prayer, that they would say this lengthy prayer so that all people would look at them and go, wow, they must be so much more godly than anybody else. They can pray for hours. All of this, again, under this heading of his final public teaching, starts with warning against them, and it ends with judgment that will be, look, upon them, verse 40. This is where their path leads. Verse 40, judgment. In his last public teaching, in his last words, look at what he says. These will receive greater condemnation. That's his last words. That's his last words to them. These will receive greater condemnation. He's not fooled. They've been pretending in front of all these people. He has. They haven't fooled him. He knows what's going on with them. And the context in all of this is in regards to punishment that is coming. What's so dangerous about them? This is the end of the path that they're going down. It's in Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven for people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And then after pronouncing woe after woe after woe, you get to verse 33. And he says this directed at them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? It's eternal punishment that is at the end of this path that they are leading others down. 
So what's the overarching message of this final teaching? The people are being deceived. You're being deceived by hypocrites who pretend to be spokesmen for God, who pretend to be righteous and godly, but who are actually children of their father, the devil. John chapter 8, verse 44. They pretend to be righteous. They're about to condemn him and put him to death. Who's genuinely righteous? There's false information that's being pervaded all throughout Israel right here amongst people. And he is saying essentially, wake up. How can you not see this? How can you not see what's going on here amongst your false shepherds? How did they not see it? Well, the reality is, how do we not see it today? We had a conversation within the last few days going, how does this person not see the false shepherd that's purveying this information to them? It's a lie, and it seems so obvious. It takes Scripture to reveal truth like we said from the beginning. And at the same time when it reveals truth, it shows what's a total fraud. Jesus is doing what a good shepherd does, warning the sheep. And at the same time, he's warning the sinner, repent from loving self more than others. Repent from loving self more than loving the Lord your God. The word of God from the mouth of God here has exposed the hearts of men and the only appropriate response is turn from your sin. Confess your sin to a compassionate Savior and plead for Him to forgive you. And, and so look at verse 40 here to 41. His public teaching ends. And then he goes here in verse 41 to set opposite the treasury. And one more scene is unfolding here that's connected. Look at what's taking place. It's sort of like a sheep is coming to make an offering. The first part, what? False shepherds exposed. The second part, I want you to see a feeble sheep observed. A feeble sheep observed, verse 41 through 44. And it's really sort of an illustration that there's a sheep that arrives here that's very feeble, very vulnerable, very weak. This woman comes to give an offering to put her money into the treasury here. He's sitting opposite of the treasury. This is where people would arrive at within the temple courts to give their monetary offerings. This is the court of the women. There would have been 13 shofar collection chests here. They looked sort of like a trumpet pointed upward. They, they were made out of metal. They had names inscribed upon them. Half of them said free will offering. Verse 41, he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Literally, the word is that they were throwing it in there. That they were throwing metal coins onto this metal trumpet thing. Imagine the sound, metal on metal. You can imagine how this became then a spectacle for people to come and see your giving. It wasn't like they had a little box back there in the corner that was hidden. This was a spectacle for people to come and watch and observe and to hear and to see all the sights and sounds going here with this show. Look, many rich people were putting in large sums. You would know that. Not because you saw the check they were writing, because you could hear all the noise from when they were giving it, right? Verse 42, a poor widow, just talked about poor widows in verse 40, came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Mark says a quadrant. This is the smallest Roman coin. I've got one of these. It's, it's like about the size of the end of your pinky. I mean, it's this tiny, tiny, tiny coin. It's 164th of a denarius. That's a day's wage, remember? Jesus says in verse 43 and 44, this is everything she owned. 
poor widow, total poverty. Again, just note what's going on here within the context. This isn't a teaching for all of the crowds. This is for his disciples, his men. And there's really three things that I want you to see taking place here. The first is this. This feeble sheep is really a contrast to the false shepherds, right? You see the distinctions here? Nobody would have been watching her. There's no show to see when she comes along with these two tiny coins that she's going to throw in here. They would have been watching the rich people. There's distinctions here. Those were false shepherds. She is a sheep. There is no honor for her, no greeting in the marketplace for her. She would not have been wearing any sort of elaborate robe. It probably would have been just ragged clothes. They desired attention. There is no attention directed at her except the gaze of Christ. The second thing, see, this feeble sheep is really sort of an example. Look at verse 43 again. She's teaching us something about giving. He's revealing something about giving here. This poor widow put in all, more than all the contributors to the treasury. Jesus says this, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty. So the rich have come along, they put in vast amounts here. Everybody's aware of that. But they did so really without any sort of true sacrifice. She sacrificed. Ultimately, then, that's more. That is more. It, it, I think it sort of relates to us. I hear people ask all the time, how much should I give? Is it 10%? Maybe. But what's sacrificial? Some people, that's 5%. We say some people, that's 50%, right? If you make $10 million a year, can you live off $5 million a year? What is sacrificial? Clearly, hers was more than what these others were giving here. One day from each of us, there's going to be an account given for our stewardship of what God has entrusted us with while we were here on this earth. And our checking accounts, even now, if you balance them, could show something of that. Are we sacrificial in giving? Is giving a priority or is it just a matter of whatever excess is left over? There's a story that's long been told. You've probably heard about it from Thanksgiving years and years ago where a call came into a hotline where they tell you about making your turkey. Remember those hotlines? You'd call and be like, is it cooked? Am I supposed to do this? How long is it supposed to be in there? And this call came in and the person said, I've had a turkey in the freezer for 23 years. Is it okay if I eat it? And the person on the other end said, well, has it been frozen that whole time at this sub-zero temperature? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's they said, well, the reality is you can probably eat it and you're not going to get sick, but it's not going to taste very good. And the person said, oh, I'll just give it to the church then. <laughs> but the reality is that's a lot of our mindset. If I don't need it, it's not going to benefit me. Well, I'll just give that to the church then, right? That's the mindset of many who give. Is your giving just sort of an afterthought of what you don't really need, or is it sacrificial? Is it an active part of walking in faith and trusting God to provide? So I think in some way that he points out an element of forgiving that we can learn from about sacrifice and about, about offering here, far more than the sum total of all the contributors. You see that? Greater sacrifice. But there's, there's something else here, and it's, it's not good. The third thing I want you to see is this is a feeble sheep exploited. A feeble sheep exploited. She's an illustration of what he just warned about in verse 30 through 40. For they all put in out of their surplus, 
but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Those two tiny coins, her entire portfolio, every asset. They went into this mechanism here that funded the religious system that devoured widows, and another one is consumed in the court of the women. Where were the shepherds? Where were the shepherds who were responsible for guiding and leading and directing her? Where was the Boaz that was amongst them? Where was the Boaz who said in Ruth, do not go to glean in another field. Do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. I've commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Who said, come that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Eat and be satisfied. That was Boaz. Where are they in the court of the women on this day? Where are the shepherds who are most concerned about their robes, most desiring to hear their names called out, most wishing for people to notice them, and who were content to see another widow put in all she owned, all she had to live on? Where were the shepherds as this woman put in everything she owned? I think within the context of where we've been, you could say that they're licking their wounds from their failed attempt to trip up the good shepherd in their series of questions meant to destroy him. But at the same time, they're plotting again how they might murder the good shepherd who had come to strengthen the sick, bind up the broken, save the lost. Turn to Ezekiel 34. We started with Jeremiah's text, warning of shepherds who want to destroy and scatter the sheep of the Lord's pasture. I want you to see Ezekiel's warning. See how similar the warning is here and note how it concludes. Say with me as we work through this. Ezekiel 34, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord, Woe! Does that sound familiar? Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you hear that? Those Vulnerable, you've not strengthened the diseased, most vulnerable, you've not healed the broken, most vulnerable, you've not bound up the scattered, most vulnerable, you've not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. What have they done? But with force and with severity, you've dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field, and they were scattered. Verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord. Surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has become food for all the beasts of the field for a lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will direct my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. 
As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places for which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain and heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pastures in the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. And then look at this. I want you to get this. I will seek the lost, the most vulnerable. Bring back the scattered, the most vulnerable. Bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. It's exactly close. I mean, so parallel to what Jesus is saying here. He will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick. He will do what you would find a good shepherd doing, right? And there is a good shepherd in all of this text. And he is God, and this good shepherd is here in Mark chapter 12, the Lord Jesus himself. In the rest of this gospel, we're going to see him doing those things, and it will be costly to him. The scribes, they may strut around in their elaborate robes, but the good shepherd is going to hang naked, bound to a cross. They may desire respectful greetings in the marketplace, but the good shepherd will receive the mocking words of the soldiers and the sneers of the rulers, according to the gospel, as he's being executed. Their selfish ambition is driving them to the front of synagogues and places of honor and banquets for all to see. But because the good shepherd is loving, he's going to be exhibited front and center in a place of abject humiliation on the cross in front of all of these people for the purpose described in Ezekiel 34, 16, what he said he was going to come and do. To seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. The shepherds of Israel are devouring the houses of Israel's most vulnerable, and they show us a heart that's far from God. The good shepherd here isn't going to exploit them. He's going to give his life so that they may have life. Vulnerable, as I've been saying, that means susceptible to being wounded, liable to physical hurt. Who is wounded like him for your transgressions? Who is hurt like him for your iniquities? He's vulnerable, coming in flesh and exposing himself here, dying to save those who are vulnerable, wounded by their sin. He's not like the shepherds of Ezekiel 34, 4, who dominate with force and severity. No, what you see him saying is Isaiah 42, that he cites as the good shepherd in Matthew chapter 12, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Passion, mercy, kindness, caring. Friend, if you're broken and you're lost and you're sick and you're suffering, you can come to Him. And maybe you've been in churches your whole life and you go, I've been exposed more to people who look like the scribes that are here in the past and they left scars on me. We really would be here pointing you, though, to the Good Shepherd. He will care for your soul. Yes. He will not do as they have done. You see him here in the text. As a church, we have to be pointing to him. And our prayer 
as a church, as we look at all this, is that we may look more like him. Not only warning and love. Yes, warning and love. That's a loving thing to do as we've seen. But also, by the way that we give of ourselves, trusting him in faith, and showing a world that's constantly looking to devour people, the gentle loving compassion that's found in the shepherd who came and saved us. It's ever being formed in us so that we look more and more like the good shepherd that we see here. Pointing to him, to a world of people who are hurting, dying, and vulnerable. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would form in your people, your son, so that as we interact with those in the world, we may point others to him and that they may see him in us. We thank you for the picture that you gave us from Mark chapter 12 of him. Thank you that he's so kind that he would expose for us what false shepherds look like. And not only warn the people of his day, but warn each and every one of us. That in them, we may see where we are particularly tempted. Father, we pray that you would cause us to repent you would grant us repentance as your word says that you do from self-promotion and that you would cause us to walk humbly before our God and that in that we would look more and more like Christ Father we pray that you would protect our church from false shepherds that they would not come in amongst us that they would not come in and devour sheep but that you would cause our elders to be faithful that you would cause us to not neglect our duty and forsake our responsibility, but to serve you in a way that brings you glory, protects the sheep, cares for those who are most vulnerable amongst us, points people to the Good Shepherd, continually being directed by the Word of God in the midst of a stormy world. Let your Word be what directs us and guides us always in all aspects of the ministry that take place here and help us to keep our eyes on the good shepherd who will lead us faithfully to the very end we look forward to the day that we are with him and all of his kindness compassion love and mercy that he's poured out on us all undeserved but also very real help us to model that in our own ministries and in our church we pray to the glory of his Christ's name we pray. Amen. We gather this morning on the first Sunday of the month as we always do for the Lord's Supper. Normally we distribute this, we serve one another in this way. Given recent events, you understand why it's in this peculiar little packaging that we have so perhaps both you and I can uh, start to open this uh, and I'll try not to mess anything up here because I think I may already have Last time that we did this, I did this ahead of time. I did this one. Is there anyone that needs 
the elements that want to men can serve you, it just raise your hand. Everybody. Okay. I'm doing this is in response to Jesus' example from Luke 22, Paul's instruction from 1 Corinthians 11. It's an expression of active faith and loving obedience amongst believers, those that are part of this church. And it's a witness of his work in each and every one of us to the entirety of the world, really. It's a public way of identifying with him, much like baptism. Baptism is individual. That's the beginning point. After that, on an ongoing basis, there's this publicly identifying with the group of believers that is the church through the Lord's table. Paul describes Christ's work that we need to have on our minds always. And his person in first Colossians chapter 1 when he says this, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It's the Son's body that was broken. It's his blood that was spilled. Paul says again in Colossians chapter 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The, the Lord's Supper, what you hold in your hand, what we're about to do as church, proclaims these things. It testifies to them. As a people reconciled to God through the body and blood of Jesus, we prepare our own hearts ourselves by following the instructions of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight and examining ourselves. Paul says a man must examine himself, and in doing so he is to eat of the bread, drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. I would just ask, in, in view of everything that we've talked about this morning, and when we even consider how our own hearts can be sinful, much like we saw of what Jesus was warning about here, that you would examine your own heart before we were taking communion together. Just in a moment of silence and prayer before God, examine yourself. If you've been reconciled to God through the body and blood of Christ, He saved you. If you've confessed your sins, repented, trusted Him, you're welcome to join us in the Lord's Supper this morning. If not, if you're unsure, we would just simply ask that you would set the elements aside or not partake this morning. As we do this, we do this together as a family, remembering our Lord Jesus Christ. He said in 1 Corinthians, 
11.26, Paul said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you, and we ask that you would help us, that in all things we would be found faithful, including the way that we participate in the Lord's Supper. We don't want to bring judgment upon ourselves or the other's pray that you would help give us clarity so that we would do all these things in a way that honors and glorifies Christ, that proclaims his work of redemption, reconciliation, sacrifice, propitiation, words that are so dear to us as bound in them for the very essence of our salvation and how our relationship to you has been restored and what he has done on our behalf. Make us mindful of these things. Let them be on our mind and on our heart, not only now, but as we go out from here. But may this time be so very meaningful, particularly as before last month, we have waited so long as a church family, waiting to gather again. What a privilege it is to be able to gather this morning. Our desire is loving obedience to glorify the name of Christ. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians then directs us, For I have received from the Lord that which I was also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Christ's body, this is a demonstration of his love, a death for the ungodly to reconcile sinners to God. We remember his word. Romans 5, again, verse 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians 11, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Christ's blood, a demonstration of his love, justifying the sinner, inaugurating a new covenant. We do this in the remembrance of him. Father, we thank you that we can go even to Acts chapter 2, the early church, and see how you bring us near to our brothers and sisters from another time as they did the exact same thing we've just done this morning. Closeness and unity with others that you've reconciled to you. The closeness and the unity that we know from being able to gather around the Lord's table. Thank you for allowing us as a church family to be able to participate in this time together. 
let it sanctify us and purify us as we examine ourselves and remember the great work that Christ has done. We pray that you would help us now as we come to continue our worship so that in our words, our thoughts, our actions, all may be pleasing, all may bring glory to the name of Christ. His name we pray.